Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, a machine learning practitioner with 10 years doing data science and machine learning. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Katie Hughes. Katie is both a leader and expert practitioner in using data within the nonprofit sector, specifically the violence and abuse support movement. She's been in the movement for about nine years and is currently the product owner of the Vila database and reporting platform. Welcome, Katie. Thank you so much, Liam. So it's great to join you today. So Katie, your journey has been really quite interesting and full of lots of unexpected twists and turns. How did your journey into this movement and uh, position start? I, I really rather stumbled into it. I was looking for a job and I applied as a paralegal after dropping out of law school to the Wyoming Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. And I didn't get that job, actually. And the executive director said, it's fine, don't worry, I have a different opportunity for you. Would you like to join on as the administrative assistant slash project specialist and just do what we need you to? Uh, and I'm passionate about the movements, the areas of domestic violence and sexual assault are personal to me. And so I, I wasn't in a place that I wanted to turn it down. And so I jumped right on in, uh, and it, it's been an unexpected journey ever since, um, really working with data at the time, the coalition didn't have a platform that they were using to run any of their technical assistance or grant reports. And so I was tasked with finding a new database for the coalition, and we found Coalition Manager, which is um, with Element 74 and the company I work for now. And so it's just my role to begin getting everyone up and running with that system, and, which has led me here. And Katie, how were you chosen among all the staff that could have led this project, um, you know, building this new data platform or integrating this new data platform? Um, how did that happen? I think I was just the most techie person. You know, I used Facebook. <laughs> and I, I think it's an interesting in the nonprofit world, whoever kind of has the opportunity and is generally helpful and has a yes in them at the time um, to, to be able to do a task and a passion and interest for it. I think that there's a lot of opportunity uh, that can then um, arise. And so I, I said, yes, so I'll, I'll take a look. I don't know if I'm the best person for this. I have zero experience with databases otherwise, um, but I'm happy to get to get my feet wet and figure out what might be possible here. Um, so just really having a yes in me as well as the need. And how would you say that project defined your kind of future career path? Hmm. Well, it worked is the thing, right? So in, power, right? In, yeah, in, in 2015, this is back oh, a couple years ago now, um, in 2015, the coalition was just across the state of Wyoming, which is large. And so people had been sending sticky notes in Word documents to funnel all their grant reports and then had to bring it together in a Word document across all the staff. And it was really just quite a mess. So having a system that could then generate those reports for folks in a more user-friendly way, um, in a logical way, had a tremendous impact at the coalition. And so it was really neat for me to both have that experience of okay, here's a staff person who isn't necessarily technical savvy and even really resistant to using a database. 
how can I support them in being able to understand the value and the inherent kind of impact that this can have for their lives um, at that local level, kind of really minute. Um, and then seeing that ripple across the organization and the coalition to have that impact for survivors and for legislators um, of the stories that that data is now able to tell that had it been able to be told really in um, a logical way before. And and it, it, it grew a passion for me that I never thought that I would have. I don't like math or numbers. It's not like my expertise or something that I ever thought that I would touch on a daily basis. Um, and it's really that impact of how can this support advocates in the work that they're doing, um, as well as the movement on a mass scale uh, to be able to better serve survivors is, is really kind of what inspired me to keep going. So you mentioned, you know, during that last piece that people you know, often can be resistant to these kind of changes, you know, bringing in more data, data systems. What were some typical objections you encountered and how did you overcome those? I think that there's just this inherent rejection at time, especially in crisis work, where you have other priorities that are really in crisis mode, right? So um, they're relevant, they're whole-bodied, um, they often have drastic impact. And so at many point in time, on a very intense day, if you ask someone if they want to change a database, um, they're going to say no, because there's so many other things that they need to focus on that it doesn't feel like this is something they can even prioritize or grapple with. And so I think it is like that is the most inherent, like everyone can kind of, not everyone, excuse me, but it is often that people don't have a yes or the capacity to even consider um, what this could look like and how might it benefit them. So that I think is that inherent resistance that we get. And then there's also this other experience resistant where some of the other databases that have been in use at the local level have been harmful, um, both in how they have marketed their platforms, how they've um, gotten organizations into five-year contracts um, and not allowed them to get out of it when it's not working for them. So there's there's also this experience that the field has had of really getting into contracts with applications that aren't meeting their needs and not being able to get out, which is really especially in this field where power and control is such a relevant dynamic, um, it can, it's, it's really not a healthy thing to kind of be stepping into. And then it's now my role to help shift that perspective and say, we are going to be here for you. We're going to do everything we can to meet those needs and reestablish trust with the technology world, really, um, in making sure that survivors and advocates are now able to know that there is that, that there is an app out there that's going to have their backs and do everything that we can to support them. So how did you move from being, you know, uh, you know, directly in the field at the Women Coalition to being a woman in tech, um, supporting the movement where you are now? Uh, yeah, so I unexpectedly moved to Vermont from Wyoming and needed a job. And so I, some of my work in Wyoming was building um sexual assault response teams and restorative justice work. And that is a great passion of mine. So when we moved, I originally thought that I would open a restorative justice center here in Brattleboro, Vermont. And there is already one and it's quite successful. There are over 40 active volunteers and they did not need me to be their executive director because they already have one who is phenomenal. So my dream of dreams um, just wasn't available to me. And I reached out to Chris Edmonds, who I'd worked with here. He's the president of Office 34, and just asked if he had a different position available. 
And he did. And so I started supporting other state and national level coalitions in onboarding to coalition manager and supporting them as well as helping to support the app as a whole. And where do we want to move forward? What features are not user friendly? What's what could we do in the future and what can we make possible together? So that that was that transition point for me is just, again, that need based. I, I need a job and this is something that I can do and how might I help others. Katie, I think there's some amazing things that you just said there that to help others relate, right? Because you're, you're the, the reestablished trust uh, is an important thing, but it, it's more viscerally felt in your field because it it can be seen and acted out in in incredibly impactful or unfortunately destructive ways. And so, you know, as you said, like there's there's this need and and always focus on helping. And then you can forget sometimes to help yourself, but, but so that people have context, can you give a little bit, you've mentioned coalitions and grants and things. Can you give a little perspective on, you know, this field for those who are less familiar with it? Yeah, I think so. The domestic violence, sexual assault world, um, to exist at all, we require funding, um, so that we can support survivors um, to get housing, to get services they need um, for emergency medical response and um, therapy services as well. And all of that just requires a lot of funding. So there are a number of different funders, both at the local level, at the federal level, and each of them have different requirements on how are advocates going to report to them and log the work that they're doing. And how are we going to show the impact of that work across the movement? Um, so that kind of structurally means that there needs to be a database or a solution so that as staff are doing their work, they can meet all of those different requirements by diverse funders while still being able to support survivors holistically with their needs. Um, and there's a lot of tension in there, which I think that we'll talk about here um, as well, but there's a lot of tension in there because what stories are the funders needing to be told so that they could continue to receive funding from Congress, um, as well as what are the stories that actually make a difference in this work? And that there's a lot of tension because those are often not the same stories. And how how are we making sure that we're balancing the need for more funding um, with the need to make change and to end violence within our communities? And then you mentioned like the reestablished trust piece, right? Like the, you know, that's, that's something that Lee and I see even in our commercial clients as well. So I think it just, if you don't mind just touching a little bit on that tension again, I mean, you mentioned the tension between the two different needs from the data and how they sometimes don't line up, but that, that reestablished trust piece that, that, that's just so critical. Yeah. So with Mila, uh, we are holding survivor data and identifiable mm -hmm. data within the system. And that data is biased and very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, it's vulnerable if ever breached, just um, as a normal technology breach. But it's also really vulnerable if an abuser ever hacks or logs into an account and gets access to that data, it could be tremendously devastating. And that has happened in this field before where survive applications have been breached and data gained access to and harm experienced by survivors, right? So that's the, the very real human impact 
of this and the need for trust is that it holds so much risk uh, for survivors to even consent and to say, like, we will trust that this database is going to do everything that they can to protect my data and my children's data as it is in the system. Um, and when there's been harm before and those protections haven't lived out, um, I think in uh, in from our ends, what can we do to make sure that we are doing everything possible, knowing knowing that risk is there? How can we make sure um, that we've we've really done everything possible we can to limit that risk. I mean, in, in many ways, this is the highest risk scenario that could, that, that could be imagined. Because, you know, Katie, what's the, what's the possible worst that can happen if this gets breached? Yeah, I think someone could die. I mean, if they find out where someone's currently living and there's a person wanting to cause harm, if that data gets out and their data is found because I have not done a good job, um, keeping it secure, right? Um, then, then there could be very real life impacts, death impact for this. Yeah. So, so lots of pressure. Uh, importance of trust. Yes. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't do it, right? Like I could not. Uh, I could not take this on, but for the great love and care of uh, the field, uh, for the trust and survivors and advocates to tell me what's going on. If there's a hole in the system or a loophole that we haven't closed to make sure that they are communicating that to us so that we can do right by them as well. And then the trust of the development team that we work with to make sure that, hey, like when, when we've got all of these different, I mean, 200,000 survivor data is within our system right now, um, making sure that our development team really is in that space of having shared values and beliefs and doing everything that they can on their end to protect that data as well. And kind of sticking with the development team for a bit, how, how do you help them with that? I know that a, a lot of folks on the software engineering or analytics side don't have the expertise in the field that a person like you has. Um, so how do you kind of go about working with them? You know, how do you go about helping them prioritize their work? How do you help them, you know, build this safe and secure platform that you've been working with? Well, it really helps that they are amazing. So I think um, that's, that comes down to trust as well, right? Who are you bringing onto the team and what relationships and what are their values and beliefs and um, how are your shared commitments working together? Because not often, I am not, a developer myself and there are different ways of thinking and of being and of doing um, that are often like at a point where we need to really understand each other better to be able to move forward um, so I think it's really been a phenomenal process of having this relationship over the last nine years with Pravin uh, our lead developer of building like okay here here is what we're needing and me not understanding that, like, when you need a new button, you don't just, like, grab and drop it and it has all the functionality attached to it that you want. Like, me really understanding and saying, okay, like, development is not just, like, drag and drop. It's more like grab your shovels and get digging into a new world, right? And so it took me a few years of being like, I just want a button right here and Provin being like, it doesn't work like that, Katie, um, to really then be able to say, okay, let's have more deeper level conversations around what is possible, what does this need to do, what are the inherent logical flows and hiccups that we're going to run into. 
Um, and having someone being open and willing to make those mistakes with me and, and to really encourage that growth, to not just say, to not count me out just because I didn't have that development experience. Like Profit never counted me out. He just listened and embraced. And then we talked through the issues. And I think that that has been really integral for me to be able to get to where I am now that I'm also not counting people out with their ideas, right? And I'm not also counting them out um, when I when I too have a no in my body that I don't think is possible. I say, okay, let's see, maybe, maybe I can start saying maybe more often instead of just saying no. Um, and I think it's really been quite phenomenal of an experience to just have someone both be willing to listen to me and not count me out at the same time with all the wild ideas that I have sometimes come up with. Look at that sounds like a hugely powerful relationship that you have with the dev team there. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful. You know, he too, as the developer of many different apps now, um, there was a moment in time where we had really done quite a lot of work, one of those up to 3 a.m. nights, trying to make sure the system is working the way it needs to. And over the next week, um, at a meeting just said, I, no one is making me do this. I do this because I care and I do this because I love it. And to have a developer um, who's not an advocate, you know, tr professionally trained, um, but is an advocate in their role here at Vila is just a really phenomenal thing to bear witness to and be part of. Sounds great. So let's revisit something you said earlier on that I think is a really interesting thing for our listeners. So you mentioned the tension between grant reporting, which really has to be done, right? You know, don't report on grants, the money gets turned off. You have no nonprofit. And the stories and the data that might help interventions or help, you know, make more, maybe more structural change, that more strategic level than the tactical level. Tell us a bit about your, your views on that, maybe how it is today and how you'd like it to be um, in your ideal world. Ideally, this revolution will not be funded, right? So ideally, um, domestic violence and sexual assault are no longer cultural norms within our society that we have to run programs on and that we have to do this mass reporting on. Um, the real reality of what people are living through right now as advocates in the work is that so much of their data and so much of their day is doing data reporting um, when their passion is for supporting survivors and making sure that communities are responding to trauma in a way that holds the community holistically and is able um, to make sure that trauma stops and doesn't ripple through and get embedded in our cultural norms. So ideally, it would just not happen. Um, and then the tension around that. So knowing that the, the work that advocates are doing with their survivors and their community, um, there is that idea that the revolution won't be funded, that federal funders are not going to make that change happen, right? The change happens because um, people at a local, individual, personal level decide they're not going to continue engaging um, in unhealthy relationships, and they're not going to engage in behaviors that are harmful to others. That's the real work, and that is personal work, and that is community and relational work. And that work is not funded. That is work that is resp a responsibility of each of us. Um, so that's really how the movement is going to end, is by enough awareness and enough commitment from each other. 
And then there's the tension that people are being harmed and they need services after. And so we are mandated um, really just inherently like to have shelters uh, that are funded by federal funders. And um, all of the, they, it's really quite uh, phenomenal and almost devastating some of the requirements that they have on local organizations to collect data around. So it's not, it's no slothing in the complexity of which um, with different definitions around the data, like what kinds of gender identities are people collecting? What kind of racial identities are we limiting people to um, based on funder federal requirements? That is so limiting in practice and oftentimes dehumanizing as well. So not only are we trying to create change within the human movement um, at the same time, based on some guidance, uh, we're also limiting the stories that are able to be told from the data people are reporting. And then we're not really getting good data that can be informative and useful at the organizational level of, is our efforts working? Are our practices supportive or are they harmful? Um, what can we do and where are the gaps and the needs to really be able to make the changes um, and, and support our community in finding healing and justice through these issues. I think that's a really interesting point. Also a tragic point as well, if I'm being honest. Um, the data itself is not... People sort of think of data as being numbers, as being, you know, free of assumptions, as being like the truth. And what you basically just said there is that the data that's being collected, or just data in general, often is not the truth. There's things being imposed on that, or what help, What even is truth in this kind of space? And then what the point, right? So um, someone I love, she's Dr. Ruby Gibson. She says, healing is really quite simple. You must learn to love your story. You must learn to love it in a way that transforms it. And that is what this movement is wanting to do, is to heal the story. And data is storytelling. So in a real, like in the perfect world, the stories we tell through data would have a healing impact. That is not at all what is happening currently, right? The data that, of the stories that we're telling is informing legislation which is oftentimes having non-helpful impact into this work and into this field and into our communities. And so I think that there's a disconnect in that, that I would love, you know, I would love to find the solution for. Maybe AI is it. Um, but really to have that understanding of survivor stories and listening and that community engagement around um, this is happening and this is real and this is how it has harmed me and this is what I would like and how I would feel supported to move forward and to trust again and to come into a place of being again, to feel safe again in my community. Um, that's really the storytelling that is needed to create change. And Vila can certainly help make it possible. I'm, I want to continue to grow that process. Um, but really it's that relationship with the data and um, relationship with federal stakeholders too, is how can we change the story that they are wanting and feel is impactful and so that they are not mandating um, and really dehumanizing survivors within the data they're collecting. One interesting, very interesting point that a lot of our um, friends in government also feel too, right? It's like, it's, 
you can look at the government system and sometimes think it's like they are the imposers of the will, but sometimes they are also caught up in the currents of it as well. And so you mentioned this tension, you know, between what is mandated and how that mandate might not support the stories or doesn't support the stories that need to be told. You know, Howard, have you seen anybody successfully navigate that tension or influence like using the stories that need to be told to influence what, you know, either the laws or the procedures need to be. It, it is happening. So, and it has been in this movement for a long time, right? Like, uh, we would not be here today with a movement at all, but for the people who came before and got loud and feisty and shared their story and said, no more, are we going to be accepting this as truth. So um, that impact we can see with the Me Too movement of people saying this is happening and we're going to open the veil and we're going to call it out and we're going to talk about it and we're not going to um, keep it behind closed doors anymore. And so that kind of storytelling, you can see the power of that and the ripples of it as it moves through. And again, that was a non-funded movement at the time, right? So and it is that difference that you can see at the local level as well. Anytime that they're trying to pass laws, survivors coming in and like a bill that was going in Wyoming, perpetrators who had caused harm and conceived a child through sexual assault could still have parental rights of their children. And so there, there was a bill to say, okay, we're not going to allow this to take place. If you rape someone, you do not have parental rights of any conceived child thereafter. Um, but still they required and necessitated uh, that you proved the case. And that that is such a difficult thing. So it's through survivor storytelling to say this would be so harmful that those changes were able to be made. And I think that people need to be in a place to listen. And I think our society kind of struggles with that at this moment of time specifically. Um, and I think it's just that commitment from survivors to stay in it. And know that we're going to be doing everything we can as a movement to continue to support and to listen and to engage with those stories in a really meaningful way. Awesome. And, and so what are some of the, you know, and, and maybe I'm preempting some questions that Lee plans on asking, so apologies. Um, but then how are things that you've done in the past or people like you enabling like folks to better tell their stories? Or, you know, either through, through, you know, through how you're setting up either the information or laying the groundwork, you know, is, are there things happening that make it, um, that you see that are making it easier for people to feel comfortable speaking up? Yeah, I think that like as a field, so just specifically to data, having tech summits with organizations to understand, okay, here's the data you're collecting. How do you interpret or what can you interpret from this data? Because what you think you're interpreting is often not what you're actually able to understand from that data, right? So having people come into organizations who have that deeper understanding, um, theoretical understanding of statistics and data entry and what are all those rippling implications of that, um, I think is really helpful because that conversation is new to us um, in the fields. of and, and we are often like people like myself that have just really accepted every opportunity along the way and wants to be supportive and helpful. Right. And so having people who do have that theoretical understanding um, as well as practical understanding in the field to be able to say, here are the stories you can get out of the data you have currently. And here is what you need to be able to better share that storytelling from survivors in a way that is meaningful and impactful. And where is the difference between the two? 
Um, so that that is the need right now. And on our end, as Vila, really working to identify who are those experts, subject area experts, as well as data experts that we can reach out to and say, what are we missing as an app? And we can begin to work and embed um, those features in like strategically implement uh, deeper storytelling and holistic storytelling into our database. So you mentioned stats and experts, and I am talking my language because I do like numbers and statistics. Um, how do you think, kind of from your position as a you know, person that's not a technical statistician, that AIML will start impacting the DVSA movement you know, in the next one to five years? I mean, so I am curious about this myself and a little bit afraid to say the least oh. of things. I mean, if Vila gains a full through AI, the whole world will be fine. I think, you know, there's the the love and care of advocates has gone in every bit into this system. And if AI wants to come in and learn from this, I feel secure and happy um, with with whatever they end up doing with that data. Right. Like, OK, so that's that's the romantic side of what I envision becoming of AI after looking at the efforts of advocates so far within our database. The real fear is AI would then have access to all that personally identifiable data, right? And so then what do we do like that? Is there a tremendous risk that at point I'm not yet ready to even like fathom, like I cannot fathom that. And so I would need to really do some deeper expert areas, subject area expertise, working and understanding of what are those real implications. Um, however, there is a need. I can see the need in this. Similar to the storytelling, AI could definitely help us understand what are the gaps, what are the trends, what are we seeing is impactful, how are we analyzing this data, right? Like that is something that functional functionally would be so helpful to our team, as well as then having we as advocates in the job that I'm currently doing have to make redundant decisions all of the time. So I think that there is a really significant need for AI, especially through the data transfer process where we are making redundant decisions all the time and having to transfer um, data from an old database into a new one. We currently have tried to optimize it and automate it as much as possible. And it is still something that is time-sucking and grueling from our team. And so having AI be able to learn some of those logical decisions that we make redundantly and be able to implement them for us would just be tremendous. Um, so that's a really practical sense that I could see using AI for. Um, and, and then the issue with that, again, is the data is risky, inherently risky, tremendously um, impactful for survivors and if we give this to AI, what would AI do with it? And that unknown part uh, gives me shivers and I can't do it, right? So like, um, I think I think that's an interesting thing to just talk through. I forget who the popular host is, but they, and I, I need to watch the episode, but it was, the big thing was on when some of these things go wrong, they can go spectacularly wrong. Right. And like the, um, some of the responses from chat GTP and others, it's like, it's, it's wildly, they can be very wildly off the mark. Um, so in that vein, is, is your field looking like medicine, for example, like traditional medicine is looking at the AI assisted doctor. So keeping the human in the loop, keeping the doctor at the forefront, um, but kind of having that expert brain 
alongside so that there can be 20, 30, 50, 100 different things that can be considered alongside the practitioner and that they don't have to bear um, the burden of remembering or thinking of everything. Is, is there any talk in your field around that for um, you know, the folks that are assisting survivors? I have not yet heard of this at the advocate level for working with AI to support the survivor um, at that direct point of connection, right? The direct service. I haven't heard about that. So really it's at this level of doing data reporting and analyzing the data mm -hmm. um, that is reported is where there's talk. Um, but I, I would be curious. I think medicine too comes into play for like sexual assault nurse examiners. And um, so, so I think that that would be an opportunity for AI potentially to say, okay, what are we noticing? What are we seeing? Here's something that you need to be aware of or um, maybe missing based on other medical experiences this person has had. So certainly in that field is related um, to this as well. And I think could, could be something to consider and interested. I'm really interested to see where we go with that. So it's been a really conversation so far, a couple of kind of questions to finish us off with. So Katie, you've told us about your journey. You've told us you know, really a lot about the field and how you're dealing with data and you know, even some of the AI stuff that's going on. Um, how did you, how would you say that you became a, an advocate of strong and good data cultures? So I majored in international studies with a focus on human rights in the Middle East. Um, in college. And so values and beliefs and cultural norms was kind of something that I'm interested in in general. And then after leaving law school, I worked as a financial planner for two years at a college where the data culture was not healthy. It kind of felt like a black hole uh, in my life. And so I had this experience of really being able to see like what happens when it's not going well, when there's that power and control and how things are being input. Um, and how does that feel as a person? And where's the dehumanizing impact in that, right? And so um, kind of seeing that stark difference and then coming into the nonprofit world in an organization that did have a healthy data culture, had curiosity around it, had a lot of opportunity and questions and just like, we need, we need something new, we need something that works. And having just this desire um, to create change within an organization and the willingness of staff on board to say, okay, we know that this is a need and we're going to do everything we can to make it happen. And then that collective response to work together um, and, and do that trust building together and how we're supporting staff. And then for each staff person to really take on the ownership of how are they entering the data and reach out for support when they're needed and um, being able to see the ripples of change and when that goes well. Now I get to see that all across the board, right? So with 93 organizations now seeing how are their cultural norms and um, their data practices really impacting them as an organization and impacting their relationship with us as support staff and as a technical application that they can use um, and are voluntarily using, how how can we as staff support them in making sure that their values and beliefs and needs are all really held um, in a place that we're just ready to listen and support? And what I love about your answer there is that you really focused on people and process, not on the technology. And we do see a number of companies often who have a vested interest focusing on the technology parts of data culture rather than the people and process. So 
This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much, Katie, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been really enjoyable too. I really appreciate it. And look forward to future conversations. There's so many things for people to take away, but um, something that I you know, wrote and underlined uh, as you were talking was this shared values and belief, right? Like how important that is for good cultures. Like we, we will talk about you know, the importance of, of having a good data culture, but that good data culture can exist without the purpose, the vision, and why am I doing this? And so there was a whole lot that we heard as you talked about, why is this important? Why do we need to succeed? You know, shared beliefs and the mission, you know, can drive how you, how you succeed. But yeah. Thank you for that insight. Yes. Thanks for the question. This has been really wonderful. So I appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic idea, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.